You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the Dark Feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke, and this week we are going to be covering the last of the Matricas in the Matrika series, and that would be Nada, Sim, uh, Nada Simhi, who's also known as um, Pratyangira, and also has another name, um, Atarvana Badrakali. Okay, she is a she's a little bit different from the others because the others are kind of considered a group to be um, known as the Septimatrika or Seven Mothers, and she is kind of an eighth that sometimes makes it in probably more from, say, Nepalese or maybe Tibetan even tradition. Um, but she's not always considered to be, you know, you'll, you'll see a cult of seven and a cult of eight. And sometimes, as I have mentioned before, uh, Mahalakshmi is sometimes considered to be the eighth. But um, we're going to focus on her because she does fit into the categories of the others. Now, it just again, just as all the other Matrikas... Uh, tend to be the shaktis or feminine sides of certain devas, you know, with exceptions like Chamunda. Um, Narasimi um, or Pratyangira is actually the um, shakti of um, Narasimha, which is another incarnation of Vishnu. <clears throat> Excuse me. So she is, um, so, okay, we, she has the head of a lion, okay, so we have another like we had with Varahi, another uh, matrika that is more or less half kind of human-bodied and half animal-bodied. Um, so in a sense, they're neither human nor animal. Uh, and I think I had mentioned in the last podcast, I was sort of reminded of Baphomet, which is sort of the goat-headed god that is both male, female, animal, and human in attribute, um, kind of representing that balancing of opposites. Now, like the other avatars of Vishnu, um, like well, like the avatars of Vishnu and the Shaktis, connected to these avatars and to Vishnu himself, um, Narasimhi is in a kind of a protective and preservation kind of a mode. Uh, her appearance is supposed to be very terrifying. Um, let me read you a little bit about her iconography, what she's supposed to look like. Um, okay, I'm just going to read this from, um, from an entry on her. In some images, she's shown as dark-complexioned, terrible in aspect, having a lion's face with reddened eyes and riding a lion or wearing black garments, she wears a garland of human skulls. Her hair stands on end. She holds a trident, a serpent in the form of a noose, a hand drum, and a skull in her four hands. She is associated with Sharaba and has a variant form, uh, Atarvana Badrakali. She is considered to be a powerful repellent of the influences generated by witchcraft and is said to have the power to punish anyone doing a dharma and not doing their dharmic duty, be it Brahma, Vishnu, or Shiva. It is said that when Naras... Simika shakes her lion's mane, she throws the stars into disarray. Um, Pratyangira has a close resemblance to the goddess Sekhmet from Egyptian mythology. Both Pratyangira and Sekhmet are part, man, uh, part human, part lion, have a snake overhead and an aura resembling fire. Both are great warrior goddesses. <clears throat> okay, so um, that is the iconography. That is what um, Narasimha looks like. So given that, uh, now in... Uh, we want to, I want to talk about certain aspects of her, just as I did with the others, um, kind of focusing on certain features of her. Uh, for one, we have the symbolism of the lion head. 
um, that, you know, kind of like the, the sour boar head that Varahi has, uh, that, that kind of has a, a loaded mythological symbolism of its own. Um, we want to talk a little bit about the comparison between her and uh, Sekhmet. Um, we want to talk, uh, probably before either of these two, about the story of Narasimha, the uh, avatar that she resembles. Uh, and, of course, finally, we're going to talk about Narasimni as the destroyer of black magic uh, and witchcraft, which, you know, which makes her sound like, you know, um, she makes her, it makes her in some ways a very popular kind of a deity, and you do see the worship of her seems to be more frequent. Um, but certainly tantrics are uh, cautioned, shall we say, about um, worshiping Narasimhi or, or getting you know, being initiated in her mantra. Um, because if you get her attention and she appears to you, uh, her appearance is apparently so terrifying that, um, you know, some devotees, and then they end up offending her, and then that ends up creating um, another problem. Because Nata Simi, she, because she is so um, against anything that is a dharmic or that is in, improper behavior, even the devotee who might have been wronged in some fashion if they do something wrong, they also end up bearing the brunt of her wrath. So she is a goddess, another goddess to be handled with great care. Um, not that, you know, not that those who are devoted to her um, can't be protected by her, but they've got to be aware that like a lot of these other goddesses, she doesn't have this um, beneficent and pleasant face all the time to look at. Like the appearance is what they call, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's... Um, uh, tivra, or ferocious, okay, which is, uh, um, they mention here the tantric classifies deities as either shanta, which is calm or peaceful, ugra, which is wrathful, prachanda, which is horrifying, gora, which is terrifying, and tivra, which is ferocious. So, although sometimes I have heard uh, Narasimhi uh, described as um, as ugra, so she is, um, you know, and, and, and so there's there's some real cautions, kind of like with some of these other tantric deities, about um, worshiping her. Like some of the others, like uh, Varahi, she is also worshipped at night. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And she is not, she's not considered to be, you know, her, her worship takes place at night. And a lot of the, um, you know, the, the, the pujas or the homas or, or you know, practices with the uh, reciting her mantras and, and using the, uh, the yantra can be very, um, you know, there, you People want to be careful because, like I said, if you do something wrong, um, she can take her wrath out on you, and it's not pleasant. So um, I cannot say that I personally have experience with Narasimhi. I've not um, done any kind of, of ritual. I've not been drawn in that direction. Though she is quite an interesting goddess, you know, for her for her protective aspects and her undoing of um, you know of you know evil deeds, whether they're literally black magic or not. Um, I'm reading from the bottom here um, that you know this is just something uh, uh, from another from another site where they say the goddess is worshipped under the name Pratyangira Devi, goddess with the lioness's face and human body. She's also known as Atharvana Badrakali and Nara Simhika in uh, in the Kali Sahasranama Stotra. Uh, the goddess is depicted with four hands holding the Trishula, the trident, the Shanka, which is the conch shell, uh, Chakra, which is the discus and Gada, which is the mace. However, in some scriptures, Nadasimni is said to have 2,000 hands with multiple weapons and a 1,000 tongues. Hmm, that would be 
that must that most remind me of the the vision of uh, Krishna that Arjuna had. You know, it's just like it's so, um, it's so far beyond what the mind can comprehend. Um, you know, it, it's uh, yeah, yeah. There's you know confronting a deity and, and looking upon a deity and their and their image and their icon. Um, the you know the, the closer you get to what you might call the the I, I don't like to use the term ultimate reality, but the I say the more you lift the veil of Maya, perhaps, um, and and you see um, these deities, the more the more dangerous that can be. Um, I mean, it's, it's said anyway. This is not this is not um, unique to Hinduism in any way. But you don't you don't look a deity like that when you have a vision of that kind of a deity. You be careful about looking at the deity in its own kind of pure form. Um, like I think of Zeus and Semele, okay, where. Uh, Hera tricks her into asking him to show himself to her as a god, and then she burns up. Um, you think of the burning bush in the Bible, and Moses encounters that, and, you know, he always says, you know, take your shoes off and turn your face away, because you, know, you don't look into the face of, of the god. And the same would be true of these deities, you know, if you see them in their true form. Uh, somebody had told me a long time ago um, a story about my guru, um, Amma, when she had finished her Devi Bhava ceremony. The Devi Bhava... Um, for anyone who visits Amma, and of course these are not happening this year because of COVID, but she will have, um, you know, a couple of days, usually two to three days of darshan, where she sits and um, wearing her white sari and people come and she hugs them and so forth. The last night they have, you know, obviously there's a satsang where one of her swamis gives, you know, a lecture of some kind, and then they sing bhajans, they sing songs, and then um, she goes into a mode called Devi Bhava, or the mood of the goddess, and so they close the curtains and they dress her up in sari and the, the, the sort of conical crown, and she sits and receives people all night long. Um, Devi Bhava can go on for hours. Some of the longer ones I've heard as many as 20,000 people have shown up in India. Uh, and she, you know, she just goes and goes and goes. There's only one occasion where I heard that she had to stop, get up, and go throw up, because I guess she, she was taking on so much of, of people's energy. But the story that I was told, and again, I have no... This is anecdotal, but I was told that after one of the Devi Bhavas, um, one of the women there who was uh, clean, helping clean up, I don't know that she was someone from the ashram. I don't know if she was a devotee from a local group or if she was um, actually, um, you know, or just a, a, a devoted family or something that happened to be hanging around, um, that after <clears throat> the curtains closed, she was standing near the curtain and she couldn't resist the temptation to look behind the curtain. And Amat apparently turned and looked at her, and they said she had the face of Kali, and the woman, that was, which, which appearance was so terrifying, the woman jumped back, and they said she actually was in the hospital with a high fever for several days after looking upon Amma as Kali, you know, seeing the face of the, of the deity. And that may surprise some people who are devotees of Amma that she would have that, um, you know, that, that she would have that Kali aspect, but that's actually kind of what initially drew me to her was the fact um, that she was, you know, it, it was, and it was stressed much earlier on. If you look at some of the earlier videos of her and stuff, you know, you see her doing Kali Bhava. I have an Amma doll. <laughs> these were made years ago. I assume, I, they may still sell them and still make them because people do like to have them where they have, you know, a doll of her and her white sari and so forth. But you get different outfits for her, and there is the Kali Bhava outfit. And I have the Kali Bhava outlet, out, uh, outfit, excuse me, Though the red dress is starting to get kind of torn up with age, because, of course, that's what I keep her dressed in most of the time. She's got a little skull necklace and carries a sword and a trident. 
and um, wears wears the bright red colors with the crown. So it's um, it's kind of it's, it's kind of funny in a way. Um, but I do know that now, now when I see things, I mean, that, that aspect of her is not stressed at all, particularly in the United States, and very likely because people in the United States don't understand um, these dark goddesses, okay? And they don't understand, you know, their, um, the liberating aspects of them. So, you know, so Amma as a Sadhguru would be somebody who would be there to liberate you. So it makes perfect sense that she would take, that she could be, you know, she would be in the form of one of these extreme shaktis. So... Um, yeah, so those, those are the most potent and the most powerful, but, you know, it's like, again, it's like, it's like these electrical forces, they're very dangerous. Okay, so let's go back to Narasimi. Um, I'm going to use that name, um, even though, uh, Pratyangira is, is the one that's more commonly used for her. And it's a name that, that literally means, um, sort of, um, Prati means reverse and Angira means attacking. So it's like reverse attacking. So it's the idea is that she reverses attacks of black magic. Okay, and that's what she is, one of the things that she is very um, often invoked for. Um, so we're going to start with the Narasimha story. Um, Narasimha is, a, is an avatar of uh, Vishnu. And let me see if I can tell me which one. Because um, as I mentioned, there's ten. Uh, my notes here um, don't particularly tell me which... Um, which avatar he is like you know again if there's a if there's a numbered order of their appearance um so um okay so let's just let's just look at the legend itself of Narasimha I think that's that's the best place to start okay the Bhagavata Purana describes that Vishnu in his previous avatar as Varaha which we had talked about last week with Varahi killed the evil Ashura Hiranyaksha okay the younger brother of Hiranyaksha, demon king Hirayana Yakashipu, hated Vishnu and wanted revenge. He undertook many years of austere penance to gain special powers. Thereafter, Brahma offered Hiranyakashipu, I've got to make sure I say that right, a boon. Hiranyakashipu asked, grant me that I not die within any residence or outside any residence, during the daytime or at night, nor on the ground nor in the sky. Grant me that my death may not be brought about by any weapon, nor by any human being or animal. Grant me that I may not meet death from any entity, living or non-living, created by you. Grant me further that I am not killed by any demigod or demon, or by any great snake from the lower planets. Brahma granted him the boon, and Hiranyakashipu gained these powers. Hiranyakashipu, once powerful and invincible with the new boon, began to persecute those who were devotees of Vishnu. Hiranyakashipu had a son, Pralada, who disagreed and rebelled against his father. Pralada became a devotee of Vishnu. This angered Hiranyakashipu, who tried to kill the boy. But with each attempt, Pralada was protected by Vishnu's mystical power. When asked, Pralada refused to acknowledge his father as the supreme lord of the universe and claimed that Vishnu is all-pervading and omnipresent. Hiranyakashipu pointed to a nearby pillar and asked if his Vishnu is in it, and said to his son Pralada, O oh, most unfortunate Pralada, you have always described a supreme being other than me, a supreme being who is above everything, who is the controller of everyone, and who is all-pervading. But where is he? If he's everywhere, then why is he not present before me in this pillar? Pralada then answered, He was, he is, and he will be. And in an alternate version of the story, Pralada answered, He is in the pillars, and he is in the smallest twig. Uh, there you go. The all-pervasiveness, okay? Back to that. 
Hiraniyaka Shippu, unable to control his anger, smashed the pillar with his mace, and following a tumultuous sound, Vishnu, in the form of Narasimha, appeared from it and moved to attack Hiraniyaka Shippu in defense of Pralada. In order to kill Hiraniyaka Shippu and not upset the boon given by Brahma, the form of Narasimha was chosen. Um, Hiraniyaka Shippu could not be killed by human, deva, or animal. Narasimha was none of these, as he is a form of Vishnu incarnate as part human, part animal. He came upon Hiraniyaka Shippu at twilight, when it is neither day or night, on the threshold of a courtyard, neither indoors or out, and put the demon on his thighs, neither earth nor space. Using his sharp fingernails, neither animate nor inanimate, as weapons, he disemboweled the demon king. Okay? There is always a loophole to get around these boons. If only the Asuras would realize that, right? The Shaiva scriptures narrate that the god Shiva assumed the avatar of Sharaba to pacify Narasimha afterwards when he started to threaten the world violently. Okay, because what we see in Narasimha is now that he's tasted blood, the blood of a demon, just as we saw with the Matrikas in battle, he becomes bloodthirsty and violent. Okay, uh, The Shiva Purana mentions, After slaying Hiraniyaka Shippu, Narasimha's wrath threatened the world. At the behest of the gods, Shiva sent uh, Virabhadra to tackle Narasimha. When that failed, Shiva manifested as Sharaba. Sharaba then attacked Narasimha and immobilized him. He thus quelled Narasimha's terrifying rage. Narasimha became a devotee of Shiva after being bound by Sharaba. Okay. And um, the Kurma Purana describes the preceding battle between the Purusha and demonic forces in which he escapes a powerful weapon called uh, Pasupata. According to Seufer, it describes how Prahlada's brothers, headed by Anuradha and thousands of other demons, were led to the Valley of Death by the lion produced from the body of man-lion. The same episode uh, in the Matsya Purana several chapters after its advent of the, uh, of, after its version of the Narasimha event. Okay. So um, the significance is listed here. Um, Narasimha is a significant iconic symbol of creative resistance, hope against odds, victory over persecution, and destruction of evil. He's the structure not only of external evil, but also one's inner evil of body, speech, and mind. Okay. Um, and it says that Vishnu's incarnation as Narasimha is one of the most chosen themes among the, uh, amongst the avatars, perhaps next only to Rama and Krishna in popularity. Lord Narasimha also appears as one of Hanuman's five faces, who is a significant character in the Ramayana as Lord Rama's devotee. Okay, so we see this, um, you know, okay, so you have this sort of terrifying image of, of Narasimha. And we can see how Narasimhi has the same qualities as one who is there to destroy and avert evil and who hates all forms of evil. Uh, we see that, you know, that, that Shakti role. Um, and as we indicated with the other Matrikas that they all have a vice. Um, as it was pointed out in Ferocious, um, the, the Theon Press book, um, she's not technically one of the seven mothers, so she doesn't have technically a vice assigned to her. But if there was one, they said it would probably be rage, okay, rage and anger, because she represents that kind of uncontrollable rage. And in that aspect, it makes her similar to another goddess um, I want to talk about, Sekhmet. Okay, now Sekhmet is an Egyptian goddess. Uh, she's the daughter of the sun god Ra in Egypt, and was um, she was extremely important. She's uh, the vengeful manifestation of Ra's power, the Eye of Ra. She was said to breathe fire, and the hot winds of the desert were likened to her breath. I swear it's so hot out today that it's, it's like a Sekhmet day. 
She was also believed to cause plagues, which were called her servants or messengers, though she was also called to ward off disease. In the myth about the end of Ra's rule on the earth, Ra sends the goddess Hathor in the form of Sekhmet to destroy mortals who conspired against him. In the myth, Sekhmet's bloodlust was not quelled at the end of battle. Okay, very similar to Nata Simha. Um, and we also see this in a version of Kali's myth, too. Um, and led her to destroying almost all of humanity. To stop her, Ra poured out beer, dyed with red ochre or hematite, so that it resembled blood. Mistaking the beer for blood, she became so drunk that she gave up the slaughter and returned peacefully to Ra. Okay, um, we're going to have another podcast on Sekhmet, so you'll probably hear that story again. But, um, you know, this idea of uh, slowing her down with alcohol, you know, beer saves the day, right? Um, so she is, you know, so, okay, so we see this aspect. In this case, we don't have, we don't have beer slowing down Narasimha, but we do have um, the god Shiva coming in his, um, in his other form to um, his form as uh, Sharaba. Now, here's another um, perhaps slightly more tantric um, inflection here. Okay, and this one's told in the Markandeya Purana and the Shiva Purana. And it says, at the beginning of the Treta Yuga, Lord Narasimha, an avatar of Vishnu, killed the unruly king Hiranyakashipu by tearing up his body and drinking his blood. Because of the anger in Hiranyakashipu's body and blood, Lord Narasimha, drunk on rage, could not be stopped. To calm him down, Lord Shiva came down as Sharaba, a bird-animal-human hybrid. Upon seeing this, Lord Narasimha created Gandabarunda, a two-headed bird to fight against um, Sarabeshwara. These two beings fought a long time, terrorizing the world without reaching a solution. Solution, I can talk. Seeing this, Shakti invoked Pratangira, which is Narasimha, Simi. Uh, Pratangira appeared before these fighting beings and roared, because she's a lion. When she roared, the terrified Sarabeshvara and Gandabarun stopped their fight. Pratangira had the combined power of Vishnu, Shiva, and Shakti, and she was more powerful than any of them. Wow. That is quite a goddess who is more powerful than the Adi Parashakti. Um, now, here's another story where they say another version in ancient times when two rishis, uh, Pratyangira and Angiras, were meditating, they rediscovered a goddess through a mula mantra who was nameless. Later, she privileged the rishis by naming herself after them, and hence she was called Pratyangira Devi. Narasimhi is another name. It means Nara means human and Simha means lion. So she got named as thus as she appears with a lion's face and human body. The term prati means reverse, and angiras means attacking, as we just said. Okay, um, and she's also eulogized as Atravana Badrakali, and that she is considered the ruling goddess of the um, Atravana Veda, the scripture that contains spells to conjure and cure. Uh, Pratyangira is one of the chief warrior goddesses of Lalita Tripura Sundari's army called Shakti Sena. Adi Parashakti, uh, now remember, Adi Parashakti is the primal consciousness of the universe, okay? At an earlier time during the war between her and Bandasura, um, where Tripura Sundari is the one who, who fights, gave two boons to Pratyangira that the protection offered by Pratyangira is invincible and no god, not even Adi, Parakti, her, Parashakti, sorry, Adi Parashakti herself, can, can overcome it. Also, when invoked for offensive purposes, Pratyangira gives invincibility and sure victory to her devotee. Thus, Pratyangira is very popular among the um, Chatriya's warrior caste. She is often described as the ultimate goddess to be worshipped for defensive and offensive power. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, okay, we have a goddess here who is said to be, she is a Shakti of her own, but she is said to be 
<laughs> potentially more powerful than Shiva, Vishnu, and Adi Parashakti. So that is that is quite an energy to to contend with, and um, so yeah. So people who are interested, it's it's not that you can approach her, although you know there's there's a lot of cautions about, particularly um, when one in, it looks to encounter her through through tantric practice um, and be initiated by a guru into into her mantra. Um, there's, there, there are still a lot of warnings, even for devotees who practice their, them practice perfectly. Um, because sometimes we, you know, sometimes people are not ready to see what they're going to see. And she is, you know, she is clearly an, an extremely powerful form of, um, this, this primal consciousness, but she also is kind of an embodiment of rage. And it's interesting with rage as a force of the universe. We see this a lot throughout all of the matrikas. I can't, I'm kind of reflecting on this and, you know, and in rage, we might connect with the fire. Like again, I'm not, and here I'm sorry, my, my Greek training, Greek mythology training comes back and I keep thinking of the rage of Achilles and the Iliad and how that rage, uh, I, I think of the, you know, when he said, when the river gets set on fire, um, by Hephaestus and, you know, the river that tries to, uh, uh Skanda, that tries to drown, uh, Achilles when it's piling up with bodies. And so it's just setting all these bodies on fire and it's just this river that's on fire. It's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy scene in the Iliad, but, um, you know, the fire of rage and how much, um, comes out of that, um, now, the fire doesn't, again, as we've said about fire, fire doesn't have to represent rage. Fire can also represent, you know, fire is a creative energy, right? It's also a purifying energy. Um, but but, this, is, but this, this kind of also underscores the very elemental nature of the matrikas. They're very elemental. They're very earth-connected. They're connected to what we think of as the traditional elements, you know, fire, air, water, earth. Um, but they are, you know, it's, but they, they are sort of embodiments of that power as well and of a greater power. So um, they're not, not to be underestimated um, as they, they tend to represent the most uh, extreme aspects of this particular energy. So um, that needs to be handled with care. Um, let me talk a little bit about the lion symbolism here because... Um, because the lion is, okay, the lion, just as we've, we've seen um, the sour, the boar, the tending to be um, a, an earth symbol, and we've seen the bull uh, as being a, a kind of moon symbol. So when we talk about the lion, we're talking about something that's more of a solar symbol. It has to do with the sun. And um, I, had, I had some notes on this. Let me just, um, I was looking at... Uh, <clears throat> I was looking at Campbell and, you know, and, and we, he talks about, um, the, that, the figure of, let me, let me find it in here. I, I had put it down and then I, then I closed my book on my, on me again. I haven't done that in a while. Okay. I think this is what I'm looking for. Um, okay. Yeah. Zervon Akarana, which is also known, sometimes known as Aeon and is the, um, one of the, uh, deities, um, associate, certainly an Orphic deity and tends to be associated with Zoroastrian, which is another man lion and also tends to be associated with Vishnu and tends to, he tends to represent the, um, and his name, Zervan, uh, Akarana means boundless time. 
Okay. So again, we have this connection to time and to death. And, uh, and he has this, this head of the lion. Um, so yeah, so, so the lion symbolism, we, we tend to see the lion kind of like the elephant. And I think the elephant tends to be used more for sovereignty and royalty in India, but the lion also has that kind of representation. And again, it tends to represent, um, the light of the sun. There's also a ferocity to the lion, just as there is to the, uh, to the boar, um, the lion is, you know, like, like Durga comes in, her particular mount is also a lion. And it's a lion that actually um, also engages in destroying demons. Uh, Varahi and uh, Narasimhi in the battle against the, um, uh, the battle against the Ashuras, the two of them, uh, they're, they both, they both attack in their animal forms as animals. So Varahi attacks with the boar tusks and, um, Narasimhi with, uh, her, you know, with, with her claws and with her jaws as a lion. Okay. So, um, there's, there's another, some other explanations here, some other connections that are made. Um, she, uh, let's see. She is, she has a, okay, this is another description. Um, she's described as a goddess with a male lion's face and a female human body representing the union of Shiva and Shakti and holds the combined destructive power of Shiva and Shakti. Combination of lion and human represents the balance of good and evil. In Shaktism, Pratyangira is Siddhilakshmi, a form of Guyakali. In Durga tradition, Pratyangira, Pratyangira is Purnachandi, the fiery destructive power of Brahman. Okay, so we have this fiery rage and destruction again. In the Vedas, Pratyangira is Atravana Bhadrakali, the goddess of Atharta Veda and magic spells. Okay. Um, I had another note on her that I wanted to look at, again from Ferocious, which also mentions it. They talk a little bit about her iconography here too, um, which I'm looking at, but I think we've already discussed that. Um, let's see. I had a, I had a note here. And I just want to make sure I can find it. Okay. Okay, let me just read some of the historical context here from Ferocious. I'm looking at page 241. Natasimi is a difficult deity to trace in terms of ritual texts or historical records. She occurs in the battle narratives of the Sri, you know, Sri Devi uh, Bhagavatam, where she attacks the demon army with her lion, claw, with her lion claws. Wow. The Natasimhi... Resembling Narasimha, the man-lion incarnation, came there. This is uh, what the text reads. The, in, in brackets, demons, came with great force to the battlefield, stretched their bows to their ears, and shot piercing arrows, sharpened on stone and tipped with iron, at the Chandika Devi. Narasimhi tore the strongest demons with the sharp nails, and devouring them, walked to and fro, made dreadful sounds. So this is the way it is in Chandi. Um, there's a slightly different translation that I have, but it's the same one. It says, by contrast, the other Matrikas use particular weapons like spears or swords. Since Natasimi is the vital power of Natasimha, who likewise kills, likewise kills using his bare hands and claws, she too fights in the same visceral way. Being lion-headed, she acts in a very bestial fashion. Only the sow-headed Varahi shares a similar way of fighting in that she kills with her boar tusks. This is actually quite rare, and this bestial mode is not common. Even those demons who are animal-headed... Um, like Rakshashas, tend to appear in text or iconography wielding weapons, much like their divine antagonists. And so the appearance of Narasimni ripping and tearing at demons would be rather shocking to the medieval Brahminical audience. It's noteworthy also that Narasimhi, 
in the battle scene enters the fight at the moment when the devas are helpless to fight and that she makes a point of, attra- of attacking the strongest demons, strongest in quotes here. This would suggest that she is not only one of the fiercest of the, fiercest of the Matrika goddesses, but is also one of the strongest among their number. While we find Natasimi in the Brahminical pantheon, we note with interest that she is also present elsewhere. Her alternate name, Pratyangira, occurs in some medieval Jain tradition, where we find one text called the Pratyangira Kalpa, authored um, by the mystic Deva Badragam, um, and another work with the same title by Balachandrasan, which indicates that her cult was not limited to the Brahminical and its related traditions. As Jainism is a largely peaceful religion, it's somewhat surprising that such a ferocious goddess would be among the Jain deities. Likewise, Natasimi is borrowed in the tantric Buddhist tradition where she appears as the lion-headed Simamukha, which means literally lion-faced, a protector goddess who embodies the ferocious and wild nature of the Dharma when confronted by evil. Okay, so the the Dharma is this um, this maintenance of the order of the universe. Interestingly, in the Tibetan tradition, Natasimi is not a matrika, but a goddess who appears in the image of a matrika to better combat the matrikas themselves. A sharp departure from her Brahminical origins. Okay. Um, Let's see. So they have... um, Okay, so they they mention... um, that, you know, it, that she is, in this the medieval tantric tradition, she is included as one of the matrikas and called Natasimhi, appearing as a guardian figure with her sister goddesses. This can especially be found in Sri Vidya tradition, where she is essentially a dikpala, or guardian, of direction within a mandala. When she's mentioned independently, she is called Pratyangira. Whatever the name, however, these are simply two names for the same goddess. Um, within the um, um, Kubijikanta Oh, hang on. Um, Kubjika Tantantra. Thank you, I got it. She appears as a mi- minor figure, but is provided with a yantra. And that's another thing, too. You don't see the, a lot of the matrikas having their own yantra or symbol, sacred diagram, on some guidelines for ritual. Um, so they talk about um, worship of Narasimi. And uh, victory over the enemies can be affected by means of the sounding of a war drum after worship of um, Ruja Kubjika, alias Pratyangira, at midnight on a cremation ground. While the drum is being sounded, the Pratyangiragana should be recited. The goddess should receive a Bali, and the nature of which is not clear, Bali being a sacrifice. Um, they is... Um, these passages, they say, are significant because they demonstrate Narasimi is equated here with uh, Ruja Kubjika, or Howling Kubjika, a very prominent goddess of the medieval period who, to whom belongs a very extensive tantra. The first of the two quotes shows that Pratyangira is equated with supernatural powers as well as sovereignty and destruction of enemies. Natasimhir is also given a yantra, which is not a common feature of the other Matrikas. Um, and it also identifies her as Aratra Devi. Um, okay. So... Let's see what other associations we have with her. Okay. Okay. So that's really all that I have from there on her. Um, So we have, okay, so you have this idea. So when we talk about her as a solar deity, if we think back to um, Sekhmet and what we just said about her, her breathing fire, 
it's almost like the it's almost like the the demon Valor in um, Celtic myth, the, kind of representing the sun at its highest, its hottest, and its most destructive. You know, from which one needs you know certainly in India, looking forward to the monsoon season or the cooling rains, or here looking forward to autumn when things um, start to cool down. Usually after uh, Lunasa on August first, we start to see. I mean, the decline of the year begins as of mid July in terms of the sun declining in the sky. But this would represent the sun at its height and, in, and in certainly in a more um, ferocious form. I don't necessarily want to say evil form I, I would or negative, it, but it's a form that can be, um, you know, like I said, while the sun warms the earth and makes things grow, it's also the kind of sun that can cause a drought and burn things up, right? So there's that, that, um, that lion symbolism that, that, you know, that, can, that links her to that kind of... Um, solar mythology and solar energy. Um, okay, so we talked about the Sekhmet story, and I guess the last thing I'm going to talk about is the idea of Natasimi as a destroyer of black magic. And this seems to be her, like I said, her most prominent aspect, um, or, or the thing that she is most known for. So um, to, in order to do that, I mean, there's, there's, there needs to be sort of a reciting of her mantra, and, um, you know, certain sacrifices, usually hot peppers, I think, are said, you know, it used to be animal sacrifices, but now um, they say, you know, rather than the blood sacrifice, you know, burning hot peppers, although not something I advise you do indoors. Um, you definitely want to try to do something like that at some kind of an outside altar. But, um, yeah, but she is, but, but, but she's also a, a goddess who does not, you know, you can't just do one big ritual and that's it. I mean, she will... Um, in order to have to build any kind of relationship with her, it takes takes some time. Uh, now she is um, so yeah. So we have this, um, and what's interesting, by the way, is that they mentioned in Ferocious that the peppers are there to actually cool her rage, which is kind of weird. Um, it's kind of like I don't know, was it like drinking hot tea or hot coffee to make yourself cooler? I I don't know, maybe something like that. Um, <clears throat> In any case, she's a very, very powerful spirit. She is evoked when people do feel they are like they are afflicted by somebody's negative magic. Um, and I should indicate that sometimes that's intentional and sometimes it's not intentional. Sometimes people do kind of put a quote-unquote bad mojo on people without intending to do so or, or send negative energy that way. So she would be a good goddess for protection against this. Um, but again, it's, it's a good idea to take care because um, if you do something wrong or you don't keep up your end of the bargain, um, you know, you, you could find uh, yourself in the bad position that, you know, that your, that your attacker might have been in. So, um, so that's something to be borne in mind. She's, you know, <clears throat> they're, they're, her worship comes with a lot of warnings, even more, I think, than Chinamasta, even more than uh, Varahi. So, uh, you know, so again, not, not saying that, that people who don't feel a need shouldn't, you know, maybe investigate, but, um, but be careful. You might want to just start with reciting mantras or something and, and, and see how it goes from there. Um, but, but getting fully involved in that, um, I, <laughs> it's, uh, it, that, that can be, that's, it's, it's one of those things that could be, you know, it, 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 it Depending on on how you you know how you respond to these relationships with these deities, this could be a um, you know it, there there could be a lot that backfires there. I guess let's put it that way. So um, I would urge anybody with an interest in Nada Simi to be cautious. That said, 
she's obviously a very respected goddess and one um, and, and a very potent deity of protection and um, anti um, anti negative magic and so forth. So, okay, with that, I'm going to end. I'm going to try not to go on endlessly like I have in the last couple of these. Um, at least I feel like I have. Um, okay, so this is the last of the Matrika series. Um, I'm going to cover the Morrigan for Halloween, I think, as I mentioned last time. And then I'm going to cover some of the uh, darker Egyptian goddesses to probably flesh out the year. I, I mean, I might, I might change it up a little bit if um, I come across something else that, that looks maybe more seasonally appropriate or interesting. Um, and then next year, we're going to get into some of the other ones. Uh, certainly, I've had requests to talk about Babylon uh, in the Thelemic tradition, and I've also had requests to um, to talk about some of the um, African deities or some of the South American, um, you know, sort of voodoo or Santeria kind of deities. So those will probably also be... Um, up for next year and probably there will be another Hindu series on the Navdurgas which I have not which I did not get to this year but I just thought okay people probably people probably want a break from Hinduism at this point I mean unless it happens to be your thing I think a lot of people judging from what I'm seeing in my numbers a lot of people are interested in Hecate a lot of people are interested in Medusa and a lot of people are interested in Lilith um those seem to be some of the most popular podcasts so um you know, so I, so I think I need to kind of um, shift my focus, you know, I mean, this has been, this has been a very interesting and intense year, uh, looking at these particular um, visions of the divine feminine, which I encourage anybody, even if they don't practice Hinduism, even if they don't, um, even if they just have an interest, a general interest in the dark feminine, um, the, the, the uh, Mahavidyas and the Matrikas and a lot of these visions, they show the complicated nature of the feminine. And in that complication, it's kind of like we see, we see embodied everything, the auspicious and the inauspicious, and both are divine. That's really the message that you want to take away here. You know, yes, there's the vice, but, um, you know, and it's a matter of how do you balance those things. All of these things are on a spectrum. They just are. Um, we apply an ethical, you know, I like this, I like that. And of course, you know, when you are when you are living in the world and interacting with others, you practice discrimination. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean discrimination um, in terms of making making decisions about what's right or wrong for a particular situation. So, um, you know, so the matrikas, uh, they're definitely reminders of that ferocious energy. And they're reminders um, in our culture, I think about this a lot, about how... Um, that there's the potent feminine energy that underlies everything. You have these shaktis that are kind of so fierce they end up in the underworld or staying in the underworld because they are the kind of thing that cannot be near the surface or cannot be out in the open um, because they, they could be too destructive that way. But these these are these are the powers of consciousness, and basically it's pointing to the, the very the, the intense power of consciousness. And when I think about um, instances where you see men subjugating women, now I'm not going to say this is true about all men or that all men think this way or whatever, um, but I sometimes see something like that. Like a friend of mine posted this article about uh, Christian wives and obedience and, you know, get a young wife and, and train her early. And it's like, oh, fuck you. Whoever wrote that article. <laughs> I get really tempted to send one of the Matrikas after one of those people, let me tell you. But it's, they have, um, 
you know, there's this, you know, this idea that the woman has to submit and be obedient because that's her role is to be passive and to be patient and to be submissive and to be chaste and all this kind of crap. Um, it's, it's not, um, you know, the, 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 the supreme primal power of the feminine is something that, you know, I, any man, no matter how big his gun is, and I mean either literally or figure, you know, an actual gun that you shoot, as a, and, and also the one that they carry around with them that they uh, seem to um, prize very much, um, or, or have, a, have, have a big attachment to how big it is or, or whatever, um, that, that uh, I don't really think women are honestly that, that attached to. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to go off on that tangent. Um, but in any case, you have this, you know, um, th- this idea of the man who's going to be manly over the weak woman. Women, woman being womanly is weak. Uh, being womanly is not weak. And that's, that's the message here. Um, that, mes- that message, by the way, is also tends to be a message that comes through in the novels that I've written. Um, Maeve uh, came out in June, and I don't know, by the time I put this out, it's quite possible that the Morrigan timelines will be out. But both of them kind of take, you know, take a look at these themes and turn some of the, the normal ways of looking this on it, looking at this on it, their head. So uh, prob- probably worth checking out if this is a theme that interests you. And with that, I'm going to say, um, you know, we're going to call it another podcast. Um, thank everybody for listening. Uh, check me out on social media, Cathonia on YouTube. Please subscribe and press the bell notification so you know when another podcast comes out. Cathonia Podcast, two words on Facebook, one word on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cathonia. I've got a couple special issues, special podcasts just for patrons coming up on specialized subjects like the Hindu underworld and looking at um, the, the, the comparisons between sort of quantum mechanics and um, the Hindu scriptures. You know, not it's not going to be a whole class. It's not going to be super intensive. But just to give us an idea of, of how those two um, actually do seem to fit together uh, to some degree. And there'll be some other ones, too, that are coming up uh, by request. So join Patreon. Um, there's benefits. Uh, there's going to be more benefits coming. Uh, and so, it's, again, it's patreon.com slash Cathonia. And beyond that, um, I have my Cathonia.net, where you can get all these podcasts back. Um, you can listen to them all on metapsychosis.com, uh, you know, on, on your computer. And, of course, you know, if you haven't subscribed, um, you can do that as well. And also you can see links to my other work and then to my related services, which have to do with people working with people in transition through Reiki and, and using tarot and, and, and some other methods to, um, to help people, help guide people through transitions, not to, not to fix things for them, but to help guide people through transitions, give them, you know, some kind of um, help or advice. Uh, and that's uh, all scheduled and explained at liminalreiki.com. So with that... Um, I'm going to say thank you again and till next time.